fasting is something that's a little bit strange to you, something that you've never really done, uh, something you don't really know the theology behind. What is this all about? Uh, as one man once said uh, on a day like today, he said, fast smashed, you know, I'm not going to fast. Uh, but then as the word of God went forth, the Lord changed his heart to where uh, he took that week uh, to fast and then would do fast not only from food, but uh, food and water for a period of days, um, realizing his desperate state for the spirit of the Lord in his life. And, and so uh, with all that being said, you know, we today would ask the Lord to take our mindset beyond something that's so foreign with fasting. You know, we think of fasting and our minds go towards the monks, you know, the, the Catholic monks or the Buddhist monks, you know, and off up in some thing out in the foreign, you know, mountain and just like, that's what they do up there. I think they fast up in there, you know, or, or uh, you know, Gandhi. I remember something with, you know, the British situation where he fasted uh, for quite a while and almost died, you know, and then that was a little weird, so I probably won't ever do that. And if I have to cruise around in my underwear and fast, then we won't be doing that, you know. <laughs> uh, or, you know, we think about, you know, Jesus's warning about how we fast and that we're not to do it so that we would appear religious. And so we kind of discount fasting because there's a good warning from Jesus against self-righteousness and religiosity. Uh, and also with that, we think that Jesus is saying, uh, don't ever tell anybody that you're fasting, you know, and, and that's not what Jesus is saying there. And so we need the Lord over this next week to just shape our understanding of fasting to where we're, we're like the disciples of Jesus, where fasting was a normal part of our Christianity. Uh, and speaking of disciples, and, you know, of course, the root word of uh, discipline is disciple. Uh, God desires us as his followers and as his learners, as disciples, to be disciplined. To be disciplined. As John Piper said, not doing some things you feel like doing is the daily pattern for the disciple of Jesus. And so all that we're calling our church to over this next week is, is to be disciplined as Christians, to not do something that our body wants us to do. That's the daily pattern for Christians. Yes, that's daily. As Jesus says in Luke Chapter 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Is that something that speaks of your life? Yes, daily I deny myself. It's not a very American thing, is it? We actually think it's a virtuous thing as Americans to just give ourselves anything and everything we want. Uh, and that's a very good virtue. Stuff our face full of the food, stuff our ears full of the music, stuff our eyes with the media, and just as much as we can get, materialism, just give it, give it. When the Lord would say, there's many times that I'm calling you towards denial. You know, when we're resurrected in the end times, there will be no self-denial needs because none of our desires will be sinful or foolish or self-centered. But until then, we are sinful and foolish and self-centered daily. Therefore, let us deny ourselves daily. Paul speaks of discipline and self-control regularly throughout the word. When he's preaching to Felix in Acts 24, he says that the essential uh, portions of, of the deity of God is that God is righteous. His spirit brings about self-control to his followers. And there will be a judgment to come. Paul spoke of the fruits of the spirit in Galatians 5 and said that a fruit of love in a Christian's life is that they will be self-control. He made it part of the qualifications to be a pastor or an elder was that a pastor and elder would be self-controlled. It's the sort of thing athletes do, Paul tells us. Paul speaking oftentimes in athletic metaphors, 
saying that every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Paul had very little trust in the desires that his body threw daily at him. And so he said, I discipline my body. So you can almost picture him, you know, doing push-ups every morning. You know, doing pull-ups. Little eye of the tiger going on in the background. And then when it's breakfast time, like, not today, not today, (laughs) you know. He disciplined his body And he would later on say that, you know, bodily exercise is profitable. It is. But godliness is something that should not be forsaken. That self-discipline in our physical and spirit. Physic and spirit. You got it. He had little trust in the desires of his own flesh. And so Paul would say, I discipline my body and I bring it under subjection. Lest after I have preached to others, I myself am disqualified. So important that we take time as Christians and lasso our flesh and dally up and bring it into submission. Because it wants to rule and it wants to control. Now when Paul says, I discipline my body and bring it to subjection, that's a non-injurious translation. The literal translation is, I give my body the black eye. It's the word hupa aezo. I give my body the black eye. When was the last time you... Just so you know who's in charge around here. (laughs) Then he goes on and says, and I make it a slave. Duologogo in the Greek. (laughs) Maybe not pronounced like that. But I give my body the black eye. And I make it a slave. There's discipline. Richard Foster is a professor of theology at Friends University in Wichita, Kansas. And he writes this. The disciplined person is the person who can do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. Now I can take a basketball and I can get it into a basketball hoop eventually. But I cannot take a basketball and get it into the basketball hoop when it needs to be gotten into the hoop. You see, I am not a disciplined basketball player. But this ability to have the power to do what needs to be done when it needs to be done is so crucial in all of life, but it's never more central than in the life of the Spirit. Because it is this life that impregnates and infiltrates and dominates absolutely everything that we do. Listen to this. It is the disciplined person who can feast when feasting is called for. And can fast when fasting is called for. Boy, we do that as a church, don't we? We love to feast as a church. Sundays in the park during the summer. Is this pulled pork? I think so. I don't even know. know, We eat at the park. We eat at the 4th of July barbecues. We eat at the chili cook-offs. We eat at our fun. We have a saying around here that we don't meet unless we eat, technically. We We know how to feast when feasting is called for. And God wants to move us to where we are disciplined to fast when fasting is called for. Foster goes on to say, In fact, the glutton and the extreme ascetic have precisely the same problem. They cannot do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. And God would call our body this next week to a time of fasting and prayer and seeking him because it needs to be done. There are things that God wants to do in our midst. And he's waiting to do them. But he's waiting to do it when we are satisfied in him. When we are satisfied in him and we are saying to him, Lord, we don't want nothing in this world. And we don't have nothing in this world. We need you. We want you. The Christian experience is that there's a daily war against the flesh. And it's through times of fasting that we slap our flesh in the face and we tell it, you are not in charge anymore. You are not in charge. I'm not going to let myself be a slave of you. I've been bought with a price, with the precious blood of Jesus, and I am not my own anymore. 
And you are not your own. We are his. We've been purchased. We've been filled with the spirit of the living God. And because of that, the fruit of the spirit today is self-control. It's what's on the menu. We're going to seek the Lord. Going to seek the Lord. Fasting is a prescription given by our heavenly doctor on how to sow to the spirit. Fasting is a weapon given by the commander of the Lord's army. He shows us through fasting a paramount avenue that helps us step into the power of God, the intimacy with God, the healing that is available from God, physically, emotionally, mentally. A man named Aldebert de Vogue was a Benedictine monk who rigorously fasted for decades. He writes a book that jars many just by its title. The title is To Love Fasting. And what DeVogue learned as he disciplined his body in fasting is a lesson for all of us. He writes, fasting was no longer a constraint and a penance for me, but a joy and need of body and soul. I practiced it spontaneously because I loved it. Are you there yet? Are you there yet? I go through many times that I'm not there. And so it's good to just come back and say, we know this is from the Lord. Let's get there again. This is an easy week to talk about fasting because we're not fasting. (laughs) It's been said it's easy to speak about fasting when the stomach is full. In fact, the first week that we learned about fasting at the church that I'm from, we left the message that my pastor spoke about fasting and my wife said, man, all this talking about fasting is making me hungry. And so we went and picked out (laughs) because feasting was called for. We're going to learn about fasting today while our stomachs are full so that we can take this week and prepare for a week of famine from food, but feasting on God. Also, when I was learning about fasting uh, in my early 20s, I wrote uh, a pastor friend of mine, Sandy Adams from Georgia, and just said, be praying for our church this week as we're doing a corporate fast. And as he replied, he misspelt the word fasting and spelt it fatting. (laughs) Talking about fatting, fatting, fatting. And he caught it after he'd already sent it. And he wrote me again and he said, wow, Fatting, that's my kind of fasting. Isn't it all of ours? Spurgeon refers to a writing by an old Puritan man, and it's called the soul-fattening institution of fasting. In that sermon, titled A Desperate Case and How to Meet It, delivered in 1864, Charles Spurgeon preached this. What is fasting for? That seems to be a difficult point. It is evidently practiced oftentimes by our Lord and advised by him to his disciples. It's not a kind of religious observance that is in itself meritorious, but a habit when associated with the exercise of prayer, unquestionably helpful. I'm not sure whether we have lost a very great blessing in the Christian church by giving up fasting. And then he writes about Martin Luther. Martin Luther, whose body, like some of ours, was of a gross tendency, felt as some of us do, that in our flesh there dwelt no good thing. In another sense than the apostle meant it, and he used to fast frequently. He says his flesh was wont to grumble dreadfully at abstinence of anything. Yet fast he would, for he found that when he was fasting, It quickened his praying. There is a treatise by an old Puritan called The Soul-Fattening Institution of Fasting. And he gives his own experience that during a fast, he has felt more intense eagerness of soul in prayer than he had ever done at any other time. And in closing, Spurgeon says, Some of you, dear friends, may get to the boiling point in prayer without fasting. 
I do think that others cannot. And maybe you're someone that your walk with the Lord and your time with the Lord and just praying and focusing and just spending that time, it's just dry, it's cold, it's, it's I don't want to do it, I just don't want to pray. I don't, I don't want to pray out loud, I don't want to pray in loud, I don't, you know, nothing. And you need to grow in prayer. Fasting will get you there. Fasting and seeking the Lord. As Spurgeon said in another sermon, if your heart beats cold in prayer, hammer it on the anvil of prayer until it gets hot. And many of us in this church can tell you, we've been there where it's cold heart in prayer. Just not feeling it, not wanting, not wanting it. Just keep praying then. <laughs> keep pressing in. And God will beat that heart until it is hot for him to the boiling point. Scott McKnight wrote about fasting. Fasting is the natural, inevitable response of a person to a grievous, sacred moment in life. When we come to places where our marriage is in turmoil, our kids are in trouble, our walk with the Lord is dry and cold, our nation is going through something that is putting it at, at its precipice of falling off the cliff whatever it might be it might be a grievous moment in our life it might be a sacred moment and we would fast with a thankful heart fasting is a response to who God is and what he's already done for us it's a response to God's love and grace man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God Fasting is a response to being at the word of God. Jesus would connect Christian fasting with the longing of our return, of his return for the bridegroom, for his bride. Fasting, it's been said, is denying the physical to seek the spiritual. And if you're taking notes of any kind or if you can remember things today, try to remember fasting is denying the physical to seek the spiritual. It's saying, I'm denying this physical food right now because God, I'm more hungry for you. I've got a rumbly in my tumbly, as Winnie the Pooh says in one of our children's books. <laughs> it's time for something sweet. And we would say, no, it's time to seek the Lord. It's time to tell the Lord, do you hear that, Lord? I'm longing for you right now. I'm hungry for you right now. Fasting takes physical longing and transposes it over to a longing for God. It's just as I hunger, God, I hunger for you. It's a time of taking my stomach and making it a longer for God. Sometimes we would simply fast for no other reason but to prove that we are not living on bread alone. But we live on everything that comes from the mouth of God. And Lord, I just want you to know that's where I'm at. I don't have anything I want from you or need from you. or I just want you, Lord. I just want you to know I desire you, Lord. One book that has been so paramount in shaping my life with fasting is called God's Chosen Fast by Arthur Wallace. And we've had copies floating around, but they're all gone right now. And, uh, and so I've ordered some this morning. They'll be here on Wednesday. You can pick them up Wednesday night if you want one. Uh, you can also get it on Kindle for like nine bucks, uh, seven bucks paperback. It'll be shipped to your house uh, and so a wonderful resource that I encourage you to read. But he writes in God's Chosen Fast, when someone does not like the meaning of something in the Bible, like fasting, they are tempted to spiritualize it and so rob it of its cutting edge that it can no longer cut. In other words, we read about fasting and we don't do it and we think, oh, fasting, it's kind of this, it's kind of that. Maybe we'll just fast from, you know, uh, from media, or we'll just fast from TV, and those things do have their places, but we want to come back to a pure, true understanding of what fasting is today. He goes on to say, because we don't want to rob it of its cutting edge. 
But he goes on to say in God's chosen fast, in the main, this is what the professing church, the evangelicals have done with the biblical teaching on fasting. To fast, we are told, is not only to abstain from food, but anything that hinders our communion from God. Or they say, fasting means to do without and to simply practice self-denial. Wallace goes on to say, we have only to widen the meaning enough and the cutting edge is gone. It is true that there are many things that may hinder our communion with God and many things that we need to practice self-denial. But the fact still remains, to fast means not to eat. It means not to eat. He goes on to write, fasting helps, or I'm sorry, this is actually Andrew Murray from an incredible book we read at our prayer meeting here called With Christ in the School of Prayer. And Murray writes, fasting helps to express, deepen, to confirm the resolution that we are willing to sacrifice anything, to sacrifice ourselves to attain what we seek for the kingdom of God. Is that where you're at? Or is that where you want to be? You want the kingdom of God living in your life. And press in. Give up the flesh. Seek the Lord. Fasting is not just saying I desire God. It's showing I desire God. We are to have a hunger for God. As Revelation 21.6 says, he says to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He is the one that gives the water of life. He is the one that gives the bread of life. Listen to what he says in Isaiah 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Yes, come by wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. I am telling you, church, I am telling you, this is my eighth week-long fast, and I'm telling you, when you Go towards the Lord with your growling stomach. It is coming and getting the bread that, was, that is without price. It is coming and getting the water of life freely. Instead of, instead of spending your time and your energy and your money on the bread that perishes. One man wrote, God rewards fasting because it is the cry of our heart that nothing in this world can satisfy but him. He must reward this cry because he is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And we have seen God move in such incredible ways. He's opened up incredible doors uh, for uh, world missions in this church, incredible doors that are book of Acts type experiences. He has healed bodies and healed backs. He has restored marriages. I want to just maybe breeze through very quickly a note that I made last night on my phone. My first week-long fast was when God was calling me out of a youth pastor role in Corvallis. And my wife and I didn't know where we were supposed to go, but we knew we were to move somewhere and either plant a church or pastor a church. And we took a week and fasted and prayed. And God was doing something on this side of the Cascades where he was preparing this church for a pastor that was in need of a pastor. God opened up a door that no other man could have opened God has brought victory over sin in this church. He's brought physical healings. He's brought connections and open doors to Nepal, including increasing our church's heart for missions, a heart that beat cold for missions for so many years. 
Last year, after we went on a two-week trip to Nepal, taking the gospel to the unreached people, we spent a week fasting and praying in this church that God would tear down idols in Nepal and that shrines would crumble and fall that are, that are shrines to these false deities and false gods. And within a week's time of the end of our fast, there was a giant earthquake in Nepal, like Nepal's never seen as far as I know. And very temples that we had prayed about had tumbled and fall and fallen down, crushed into rubble. Answers to prayer. God shook the world. We believe that there was a connection there in our church's uh, fast. We've had, during our fast, houses that had been for sale for over a year. During the fast, we went and prayed and walked around a house and within, I don't know, it was a week's time or something, there was the interest and there was the selling of the house. Something that could have never been done just by earthly willpower. Fasting and praying over the selling of vehicles and the purchasing of the right vehicle that would honor the Lord and vehicles are sold and vehicles are brought and it was through connections that could have only been the Lord. Broken marriages, shattered and torn by sin and an adultery, would come during the weeks of fasting and prayer, and God would breathe his spirit on these homes and bring restoration. Last year during our fast, we read through the book of Acts during the period, and as we're reading, people kept noticing, you know, every time someone gets saved, they're baptized. I've never been baptized. Can I get baptized? And people just kept coming up. I've never been baptized. Can I get, can I get baptized? You know, and we're like, okay, well, maybe this Easter Sunday, it was that Sunday, we'll get a horse trough up here and, and we'll baptize you guys and maybe someone else will want to get baptized. And after a week of fasting and prayer, the call was given, does anybody believe in Jesus and hear the call to be baptized for the remission of sins and to testify to this world that you are born again in Jesus Christ? And that Sunday, we baptized 40 people. This carpet was soaked and drenched and people are coming up and no one knew whether you're coming or going, you know, and, and they're just, they're all, I'll just hang out up here, you know, I guess being sopping wet would have, uh, you know. We had, a, fam we had a, a family that wasn't married that had been living in sin that was here that Sunday, repented of their sin and were baptized. They had children together and didn't know what to do and the Lord moved us that Sunday. People all soaking wet around here. We'll do a wedding right here. Make it right before the Lord. I mean, that doesn't happen. Nobody's ever heard of that. I've never heard. I don't, maybe we shouldn't have done it. I don't know. <laughs> we were fasting and praying and look at what, what God did as we were longing for him to move in revival. This next fast will be the week before we send 11 of our church members to Nepal for trekking up in the Himalayas and preaching the gospel to people who've never heard the name of Jesus ever. While another group of three are going to be going to Badur, that is the most highly sex trafficked district in all of Nepal, there's not even a woman left of marrying age. They've all been shipped out. Slave trade. Take them out of here. And there's a missionary, Cynthia, and there's a pastor there named Dill that know that the only thing that will bring change in this district is gospel transformation. And they have a heart to church plant. And we have people that have hearts to church plant that are going over there and praying over this city. And so, how fitting to call our church to pray and fast leading up to this trip so that we can prepare the ground of this dark nation through prayer and fasting. There are, there's demonic activity over there. You go there and you feel the oppression. It is so felt. There are demon-possessed people. There are people, the Buddhists, they see demons. They know it's real. And one thing that attracts them to Jesus is that Jesus has the power over the demons nobody else does. So we are fasting and praying to go and push darkness out by the power of God. And Jesus says, this type of demon only comes out through prayer and fasting. So we're calling the church, will you help us pray and fast? Because we don't got it. <laughs> He's got it. These are places that in 2,000 years have never heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Not only are people being killed and slaughtered and dying and dying of disease and they're going to hell because they've never even heard about salvation, but God is being robbed glory that is due to his name through these created people. 
Do you think the devil wants that to happen? Do you think the devil wants gospel transformation? And so we will be going and preaching the gospel. And we would call the church to fast. As we would also send out this year three men to Haiti to preach the gospel to a still hurting country since a giant earthquake. Fasting is a means of humbling ourselves in the sight of God. Fasting is directly connected with direction, knowing what way we should go as a church, as individual families. Fasting is directly connected with insight and revelation from God. With fasting comes God's divine intervention, we see in the Bible. Fasting is a spiritual weapon that is mighty in God for pulling down strongholds that otherwise wouldn't come down. Wallace writes again, in giving us the privilege of fasting as well as praying, God has added a powerful weapon to our armory. In her folly and ignorance, the church has largely looked upon it as obsolete and she has thrown it down in some dark corner to rust and there it has laid for centuries. An hour of impending crisis for the church and the world demands its recovery. For you, has fasting been just kind of tossed back into that back dark closet part in your life? It's time to bring it out and polish it off. Fasting with a pure heart and a right motive can provide us with a key to unlock doors. The other keys have failed. In the Old Testament, we'll look at some of these, but just to scan, Abraham's servant fasted when he was seeking a bride for Isaac. Moses fasted on Mount Sinai for 40 days with no food and no water, and he did it twice. Hannah fasted when she was praying for a child. David fasted on several occasions. He would fast for his sick enemies who wanted his life. He would fast for his sick child who was ill because of his own sin. Elijah would fast after his victory over Jezebel, a 40-day total fast, no food, no water. Ezra would fast when he was mourning over Israel's faithlessness. Israel would fast when they were seeking direction. Nehemiah, when he was preparing a trick back to Israel. Esther, when God's people were threatened with extermination. Daniel would fast on numerous occasions. The people of Nineveh would fast, and it says even the cattle would fast in repentance. In the New Testament, Jesus would fast in preparation for his public ministry. The early church would fast when they were sending out missionaries or appointing church leaders. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11, we'll be there in a few weeks, that he would fast often. In church history, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, David Brainerd, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, E.M. Bounds, Andrew Murray, all of these incredibly powerful men of God that would lead revival in their days would write in their own journals how powerful fasting was a part of their life. Why don't we go ahead and just do a quick scan from 30,000 feet of some of the incredible Old Testament examples of fasting. In Judges chapter 20, why don't you flip there? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. And, and Ruth comes after. So if you're looking for where that is. In Judges chapter 20, while you're flipping there, I'll line it up. Judges, man, it's called the Dark Ages in Israel's, in Israel's history. There was a time when a man had a concubine and he was traveling through the land of Benjamin. And, you know, that guy, this guy's a total jerk and not a good guy at all. But he ends up uh, sleeping at a, at a stranger's house and leaving his concubine outside the door of this house as they're on this journey. And while she's outside, men from the city come and rape her and abuse her and ravage her to the point where it was all night long and she's pounding at the door and they kill her. Uh, of the, after this night of just savagery. And then, you know, the rooster crows and the coffee's brewing and the man opens up the door and he's like, oh, she's dead. 
So he cuts her up into four different pieces and ships her body parts out to the, to the corners of Israel to show, look what the tribe of Benjamin did to my concubine. Whole lot wrong with that whole story, but the point is uh, major wickedness was going on. And you know why? Time and time throughout Judges it says, because the people did what was right in their own eyes. And whenever that's what we're doing, that's what's going to happen. So uh, Israel sees these, you know, open up, oh, I got a Christmas from Amazon.com, you know, open it up, body part inside of it, and they are outraged, just outraged. And so they, they all come together, all of Israel, all the rest of the 11 tribes come together and they say, what are we going to do about Benjamin and this wickedness? And so 400,000 people go to Benjamin, to this tribe, and they say, this is wrong. You got to repent. You, there's got to be restitution. This, this is so wicked and so bad. And Benjamin won't repent and stands in defiance and says, make me. And so the story is told that Israel had 400,000 people, mighty men who, who yield, wielded the sword, or yielded the sword, wielded the sword, 400,000 men. Benjamin had 26,000. And let's read the story. Verse 18 tells us that they prayed and went up to battle. Survey, so you just got to scan it with me. They prayed and went out to battle, and they lost the battle. 400,000 against 26,000, they lost the battle. In fact, 22,000 Israelites died. Then in verse 23, they, they come back licking their wounds. How did we lose to these guys? We had a, you know, however many, what's the, you do the math. What's the percentage of how many more people we've got with 400,000 against 20, you know. We lost, we lost 26,000, you know, we, uh, and so they wept before the Lord in verse 23, and they prayed until evening. Well, surely we've wept before God and we've prayed. He'll answer our prayers now and we'll win. And so they go out to battle again and lose again. But I prayed, but I cried. But then in verse 26, after licking their wounds after that loss, it says that they fasted. And then the history is incredible how God wins battles and sets people against themselves. And this time they won. And verse 26 says, all the children of Israel, that is all the people, went up and came to the house of God and they wept and they sat there before the Lord and they fasted that day until evening. Just a one day fast of desperation to God. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the children of Israel inquired of the Lord the Ark of the Covenant was there in those days. Verse 28 says later on, Shall I go again out to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the children of Israel destroyed that day 25,100 Benjamites, all these that drew the sword. Total victory. Only 900 men survived. So praying, the battle wasn't won. Praying and weeping, the battle wasn't won. Fasting and praying, the battle was won. God spoke, God gave the victory. If you flip over to 2 Samuel 12, you can just scan as I, as I tell, but David would fast in his failure of his sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. He's caught in his sin, but the Lord brought godly sorrow that led to repentance. And David would fast in his failure, knowing that he screwed up, knowing that he was a mess, crying out for God to be gracious. Speaking of godly sorrow in David's life, two weeks ago we looked at godly sorrow brings repentance and we looked at the life of King Ahab. And King Ahab was probably the most wicked king that Israel ever had. He was worse than any of the other kings that were before or after him. And the prophet came and spoke to him what God was going to do to him and his family line forever because of his wicked sin. And when King Ahab heard the word of the Lord to him, his heart broke and he melted and he humbled himself before the Lord with fasting and mourning over his sin. And the Lord says, because he's humbled himself before me, 
I will not do this thing to him in his day. Incredible to see that fasting is a means of humbling ourselves and repenting of our sin before the Lord. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament about fasting is in 2 Chronicles 20. 2 Chronicles 20, looking at verse 3, and we see a corporate day, or rather a corporate prayer and fasting. And let me set up the story as you're getting there. Three nations have all come up against Israel, and each nation is bigger than Israel. They come up in battle array against Israel, and they stop at En Gedi, which is where David used to hide out from Saul, beautiful little place of waterfalls where the wild goats lived. And who doesn't love wild goats? These three nations come up against Israel. They're where David used to play his harp and sing songs to the Lord. They're there in En Gedi. They're so close to Jerusalem. King Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah at the time. And he knows if these armies come up against us, we are wiped out. There is no hope. What do we do? And so let's look at 2 Chronicles 20 verse 3. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord and from all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. So here's a king that's afraid we're all going to die. Let's set ourselves to seek the Lord. And how do you do that? Let's call everybody to a fast. And so all of Judah, all the cities came together. And when they got together, here's what Jehoshaphat prayed. Look in verse 12, the latter part of the verse. For we have no power against this great multitude that's coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And maybe you're at a place in your life I don't know the situation, but you know what it is. And the Lord knows what it is. And you are surrounded on every side. Pressure, bills, sin struggles, addictions. Just pressure. Just, man, it is up against me. I'm going to lose this. I'm surrounded on every side. And I don't know what to do. But my eyes are on you, Lord. That's what the week of fasting is about. We're going to lose our home. We're going to lose our marriage. We're going to lose our kids. We're going to, you know, I don't even, you know, what? I don't have a job. I need a job. My walk with God is just, there's nothing there. I don't even know what to do. But it's high time to seek the Lord. And my eyes are on you. That is one of the prayer themes of my life. I don't know what to do. But my eyes are on you. Verse 13 says, now all Judah, listen to this, with their little ones. Is there going to be child care during the week of prayer and fasting? No, because it's a week of prayer and fasting for the little ones. How desperate are you? Get my little three-year-old in here and get him to pray. And they do. Kids are involved. It's awesome. The little ones, the wives, the children stood before the Lord. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, a prophet. In verse 15, he says, Listen, all you of Judah and all you inhabitants of Jerusalem and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you. And you guys, this is a word for us this next week for the fast. Listen, a word for you. If you would set your face to to seek the Lord. Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid or dismayed, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them, verse 17 says, you will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem, Do not fear nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. And you know that first year that we fasted, and I was like, where are we going to go? Where is God going to take us? You know, I don't know. They're a town that needs a pastor. You know, I don't know. And we just want to take matters into our own hands and make something happen. 
And Lindsay heard this verse that year from the Lord. And she said, you know what, Rory? This is a word for us. We need to just position ourselves to seek the Lord this week. We need to just desperately cry out to the Lord. And we will not need to fight in this battle. The Lord will fight for us. What is it for you? You don't need to fight. You need to come into the shadow of his wings next week and position yourself with prayer and fasting and watch him fight for you. And so the story goes on in verse 21. When he consulted with the people, he appointed those who would sing to the Lord and who would praise the beauty of holiness as they went before the army and were saying, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. So there's this three million man army out in front of them. The Lord tells them, just position yourselves. And here was the battle plan. Take the worship band and have them go out in front of the army and just have them start worshiping God in the beauty of his holiness. Totally lame battle strategy if you're a warrior. But if you know who the Lord is, it makes perfect sense. Let's go worship him in the beauty of his holiness. And they said, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise the Lord, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who'd come against Judah and they were defeated. Fasting and prayer leads to great victories. Victories that just prayer wouldn't do it. Just prayer and weeping wouldn't do it. Fasting and prayer, God hears the desire of our heart for his presence in our life. And it would take three days of Judah to plunder all of the spoil from the enemies from this battle. Flip to Ezra chapter 8 verse 21. This is a short one. We see two things here in Ezra 8. 8.21 It says, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. I love Ezra 8.21. Fasting does two things. It is a means of humbling ourselves before the Lord and grieving over sin. And we always take that first day of fasting and just let the Lord just shine a light into our heart and show us our sin. And we grieve and we mourn and we confess and we repent of our sin. Are you proud? Do you have a haughty look? Go without food. Come before, you know, you got things sticking out of place. You're like, I comb that down. That's not, bing, you know. It's like, I got nothing. I just got to come before the Lord. Humble myself before him. And the second thing that Ezra tells us fasting does, it's a time of seeking from the Lord the right way for us and our little ones and our possessions. Man, whenever you're buying a house or thinking of getting engaged or thinking of having kids or just whatever, your little ones and your family, Fast and seek the Lord. We've fasted over our home, and God has brought a home that we, we wouldn't have been able to afford if it was, you know, any other time, any other way, any other, you know, nothing. We even gave up and quit looking at homes, and God brought the home into our lap after fasting and praying. Same with vehicles. God has been so faithful in the direction for, for us and for our little ones. John Piper writes about the Ezra fast. They were hungry enough for God's leading that they wanted to say it with the hunger of their bodies and not just the hunger of their hearts. How desperate are you? Nehemiah was given favor by King Artaxerxes and he was given resources to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Nehemiah, the cupbearer of the Lord, was given special rights and privileges from a pagan king. Why? Because he set his heart to seek the Lord with prayer and fasting. Esther would lead a fast. In Esther chapter 4, quick little history here. Haman, a wicked man, Haman the Agathite, so wicked that when the Jews read the story of Esther to this day, whenever... Haman's name is read, 
people hiss and stomp the floor. So you're reading a story, Haman, wicked. Okay, Haman the Agathite convinced King Ahasuerus that every Hebrew person was to be annihilated and the Persians could plunder their wealth. And so what happens? Everyone just dies? No, the Lord intervened. But look at Esther 4, verses 1 through 3 here. When Mordecai, Esther's uncle, learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one was... Um, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So this is a desperate situation. This is basically the Jews are in the gas chambers in Auschwitz, and they are all going to die, in a sense. And so they fast, and they mourn, and they pray. And the Lord had brought... Esther into the king's life for such a time as this, for such a time as desperation. And so Mordecai went and he told his niece, Esther, look what is happening. We are all going to be slaughtered. And if he finds out you're a Jew, you'll be slaughtered too. God has put you in this place of being the queen for such a time as this, that you could bring salvation to our people. You've got to go intercede on our behalf. And so Esther said to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days. That's called a a complete fast. No water, no food. That's how desperate they were. For three days and nights, my maids and I will fast likewise, and then I'll go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. We fasted, we trust in the Lord, and even if he were to slay us, I'll still trust in him. And you guys know how the story goes. As times of great crisis, God's people would fast. Miraculously, King Ahasuerus couldn't sleep that night. And he commanded that the books of history of the Chronicles of Judah be brought to him. He read in the books about Mordecai's great heroic works and asked, was Mordecai ever rewarded for his, for his heroism? Not long after, Haman was the one that would be hanging from the gallows. And Mordecai would be the one that would be rewarded. When there's time of great national crisis, call the people to pray and to fast. We have got an election year ahead of us. And we've got people that we are in desperate trouble, aren't we? It's like, is this Comedy Central I'm watching? Or is this a new, you know, what is going on? Guys, our nation, we're at the the brink of destruction. So what do we do? Sit there and complain about it and bash each other? Or do we fast and pray for our president and for the next president? This is an election year, you guys. Let's fast and pray that God would move. Listen to this. In World War II, the king called the British to a day of prayer. Two centuries earlier, England was called to a solemn day of prayer and fasting because they were threatened invasion by the French. On Friday, February 6, 1756, John Wesley writes in his journal, the fast was a glorious day, all of England. One that London has scarce seen since the restoration. Every church in the city was more than full, and a solemn seriousness sat on every face. Surely God will hear our prayer, and there will be a lengthening of our tranquility. And in his journal, there's a footnote that says, Humility was turned to national rejoicing, for the threat invasion by the French was averted. Man, we get national crisis of refugees, no refugees, refugees, gun control, no gun control. You know, I didn't even know until last night, there's full-blown militia uprising over in Burns right now. And my good buddy Josh, he's a pastor at Calvary Burns, said, bro, pray for me. This is coming to my church and it's hurting people and we're warring against each other. We've got our opinions. We've got our politics. We need prayer, man. 
And whenever a church is threatened with discord and division and there's no conversions and there's sin rampant in a church, we need to fast and pray. We need to fast and pray for the ranchers over there. We need to fast and pray for the, for the city leaders, for the BLM. We've got Christian brothers in our church that work for the BLM. We've got to fast and pray for our brothers, for people that find themselves on both ends of a quarrel. Isaiah says, and I'm, I'm wrapping up, guys. Just bear with me just a little bit more. Isaiah says that when we fast, it's in Isaiah 58, verse 6. It looses the bonds of wickedness. It undoes heavy burdens. It lets the oppressed go free and it breaks every yoke. He goes on to say that when we fast in a biblical manner, our light will break forth like the morning. Our healing shall spring forth speedily. Our righteousness will go before us. The glory of the Lord will be behind us. We will call on the Lord. He will answer. We will cry. He will say, here I am. Our light will dine in the, uh, shine in the darkness. Our darkness will be as the noonday. Isaiah 58, 11, The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. That's what fasting does. You know, an incredible story about fasting, we don't have time, not even going to try, but Daniel would fast regularly as you read the short little book of Daniel. And every time he fasts, just God comes through radically and mightily and he is so glorified and kings will end up worshiping God, which is, of course, the chief end of our fasts. But there was one time when Daniel was fasting and for three weeks he was fasting. And on the 21st day of his fast, the angel Gabriel came and said, Oh, Daniel... You got to know that the first day you started fasting and praying, I was dispatched to come to you. I was coming and the king, they call him the prince in the power of Persia. And what was the other one? There were two different nations that the head demon prince over those nations came and fought against Gabriel and he was weary and he fought and he fought until finally, I think it was Michael had to come and take over that fight so that this angel could come and get and speak and give Daniel this incredible prophecy that would show the day that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey and all that God's plans were for restoring Israel and bringing them to salvation. And imagine day one of fast for Daniel. This is brutal. Day two. Day three. Day four. Three weeks goes by. He's not even hearing me anymore. And then on day 21, week three, an angel shows up and says, the day, first day you set your face to seek me, I was dispatched. But dude, there was spiritual warfare going on. It's no different. And oh, what God wants to do here. There is darkness, just like a fog over this city. There is just, there is such wickedness here and God wants to break through in our week of prayer and fasting. He wants to break through in the nation. He wants to break through in Nepal, break through in Haiti. He wants to break through if his people would pray, humble themselves and pray and seek him. The chief end of our fast is that God would be glorified. And why don't we have the worship team come on up? That always hurries me up, gets it over with. <laughs> Zechariah says, Say to the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months during those 70 years, did you really fast for me? For me? That is a very dramatic passage where God repeats it. Did you fast for me? For me? And as we've been going through all of these things and, you know, you're thinking of, man, this and bankruptcy and losing the home and my, you know, I'm, I'm getting a divorce or I'm just my, yeah, there's so much stuff. Guys, all of that, God, it's like God is going to take care of that as we just fast unto him. Like we don't fast that revival would happen. We don't fast to be delivered. We don't, like that all just happens as we desire God with the depths of our soul 
David Brainerd was an incredible missionary in America in the 1700s. And he would end up uh, just being probably 25 years old and he would get on a horse and go on the East Coast and minister to the Native Americans and preach the gospel to the Native Americans. He died at a young age from a horrible illness, but he wrote in his journal about this point of fasting for the Lord's glory. He said, in the time while I remained in this state, my notions respecting my duties were quite different from what I'd entertained in times past. Now I saw that there was no necessary connection between my prayers and the divine mercy. That they laid not the least obligation upon God to bestow his grace upon me. And that there was no more goodness in them than there would be in my paddling in the water. Which was the comparison I then had in my mind. And this because they were not performed from any love to God. I saw that I had heaped up my devotion before God. Fasting and praying etc. Really thinking I was aiming at the glory of God where I never once truly intended it. You know, fasting is truly for the glory of God. And as we take this week and we do maybe write a wish list to the Lord, like, Lord, this is my journal. This is all the desperation I have in my life. But you know what? The number one thing that I'll circle and highlight and just champion that you would be glorified in my longing for you with my hunger. You are worth it. I don't want to live on bread alone or on lean pockets alone or on tasty treat alone or whatever. I want to live on you, Lord. And I believe that I'm able to. Joel tells us, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, Sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Men, women, moms, babies, people in special times in their life. If it's your wedding day next Sunday, be here with your bride and fast. This sacred assembly that's being called. You've got athletic events. Oh, I can't be a part of anything the church is doing that week because I'm just stacked with seven kids and we're all in sports. Yeah, like, okay, let's take the week and fast. God will make, we had uh, two years ago, I think it was, we had three high school seniors who were in track competing while fasting for seven full days and they beat their old records. I mean, it's Daniel chapter one. These people were sustained by the Lord making records. And so why don't we set our things aside today? You know, there's so much that we need and that we, we need God's power and breakthrough in our lives and we need spiritual strongholds broken. But, you know, the number one thing is that we so quickly develop worship disorders in our life where we get focused on anything and everything but Jesus and we become lukewarm. And it's during the time of fasting that we allow him to rekindle the lamp of our first love. God wants to develop in you this fruit of the spirit of self-control. And you know, it's really difficult to teach a sermon like this because you're almost bordering a line of like, come on everybody, motivational speaking and like, come on, let's do it and just you can do it and and you know, people used to try to do it to appease God and the disciples come up, some men come up to Jesus and they say, how come we are fasting often but you and your disciples don't ever fast and Jesus says, because I'm here, they're not fasting. I'm here, they don't need to fast. But there will come a time where I go away and then they will fast again. And he tells the parable about no one puts new wine in old wineskins. And that whole passage, is, it's about fasting. And the old way of fasting pre-Jesus was kind of this 
trying to keep the law and trying to work works of righteousness and trying to just labor. And Jesus would say, man, I come in the new covenant. You don't have to fast to be saved. But now you fast because you're saved. Because of what I've done. Because I fasted first, Jesus would say. I fasted 40 days and 40 nights. I fasted from the throne of God for 33 years. I fasted from the rights and privileges of deity. You're worried about a burger? I fasted. Come and partake of all that my fasting bought you. His fasting bought us salvation. And now we fast in response. We fast crying out that the bridegroom would return for his bride. And so before we even get into the nitty gritties of what the fast will look like, for you, are you a partaker of salvation found in Jesus Christ? Have you received the work that he has done in his fasting for you? In his denial of his self for you? And that he laid down his life to purchase you from your sins? Have you partaken of that? Today you can, right where you're at. You can just say, Lord, I know that you have done what I could never do because I was too weak in my flesh. But you did it. You lived a perfect life and you laid down your life, shedding your blood that I could be forgiven. And now because I've been saved and now because I've been born again today, I want to respond next week to your goodness and your mercy by drawing near to you with my hunger. As we close with this song, Here we are, easy to speak of fasting when the stomach is full. Why don't we close focusing our heart on Jesus? Just saying, I trust you, Lord, with this fasting business. I trust you. You you say in the New Testament, when you fast, not if you fast, but when you fast. And I trust, Lord, that you would have that for me. And I'm scared and I love my food and it's part of my schedule and my regiment and I love cooking and what am I going to do with my time? And I don't know what I'm doing, Lord, but you do. I trust you, Lord. And as we close in this song, whenever you're ready, why don't you just take a minute and ponder fasting, ponder what God has given us as such a powerful weapon Ponder what he's calling you towards next week. And then just as it kind of comes down to that moment of he's calling me to this, stand when you're ready and worship with us and just say in your song, I trust you, Lord. I trust you'll equip me this week. I trust that you'll show me how to fast. I trust that you have this for me individually and us as a church corporately. And I say yes to all that you would call me to as a disciple. As you're ready, stand and worship.